Hello there, hope you're good. My name's George, I'm a musician. I go by the name of Cunning Folk. I record tracks inspired by music, folklore and magic. And whenever I release a track, I put out a podcast about all the stuff that inspired it. So on the 6th of May, I've got a song coming out about mermaids. So here is an hour's worth of mermaid lore for you. I hope you like the podcast and I'd really appreciate it if you listen to my track too. There'll be a link in the description. Take care. Cheers. Mermaids swim from ancient myth to medieval religion into folklore and early modern wonder to enlightenment science and Victorian sideshow entertainment. Echoes of mermaid song are heard in the 21st century. What first gave rise to the belief in mermaids is lost to the past, but it is an old belief. Phoenician coins and Babylonian seals depict human fish emblems. Fish gods and fish goddesses are also shown in the ancient sculptures in the palace at Khorsabad in Iraq. They're thought to represent sun and moon deities. It has been theorised that the mermaid's mirror may have originally represented the moon disc. The Middle Eastern fish god Oannes and later the Greek goddess Aphrodite with her half-fish, half-human attendants are in the same tradition. Originally, Oannes, lord of the waters, was depicted as a man wearing a fish's head as a cap, the rest of the fish worn as a cloak, tail coming down to the ankles. Later, the image changed to the popular conception of a creature half-human, half-fish, and has remained so right up to the present day. Teutonic water sirens did not have tails, and were similar to the Russian water sprites. The Chinese told of sea women who lived in the waters of the South Seas. Northern European mythology is rich in shape-changing mermaids who cast off their seal gear. Some Norse divinities had fish tails. The females were known as undines and the males as strongcars, nixies, necks or neckars. They were believed to be friendly. In the Middle Ages, they were believed to leave the water and come to Norse village dances where they could be recognised by the wet hems on their clothes. They were also seen at the water's edge playing on little harps, singing alluring songs and combing out their long green or golden hair. An old Nordic rhyme goes, The neck hear his harp in the green castle plays and mermaidens comb out their green hair always and bleach here their white shining clothes. The name mermaid comes from mare, meaning lake, and mulgd, meaning maid. Merfolk are associated with the sea and with inland water. The folklore of the coastal dwelling folk has a lot of sea beasts. The stories of seal women are very common amongst the Celtic folk. These merefolk could assume a fully human form and could predict the future for a bribe. They were feared 
and it was considered most unlucky to kill one. More of this later on. In 683 AD, Siegfried, the first Count of Luxembourg, married a beautiful girl named Melusine. She only asked that he never spied on her while she took her bath. All went well until Siegfried, as a result of gossip, spied on his wife whilst she was having a bath. She saw that her legs had transformed into a fish's tail. He gasped, she heard him, and there was a clap of thunder, and Melusine was gone forever. Mermaids are hybrid creatures, supernatural manifestations of a realm that humans do not fully understand. A beast of the sea, wonderly shape as a maid from the navel upward. The mermaid has shining hair streaming in wavelets over a naked torso and fair skin. Skin so strong, it could be used to sole boots. Her seal-like lower torso ends in one or two fishtails. She has a long neck and a distinctive, alluring voice, especially when she sings. With a mirror in one hand and a comb in the other, these half-women, half-fish served as ideal symbols of wonder and danger for church leaders. Beginning in the 3rd to the 5th centuries AD, church leaders simultaneously adopted, transformed and harnessed ancient pagan symbols of water goddesses to assert Christian values of piety, self-control and misogyny. Our modern conception of the mermaid stems directly from early churchmen's depictions of these mysterious creatures. Nakedness was rare in early Christian and medieval art. Thus, as topless women who also boasted scaly fishtails, mermaids would have harnessed a shock factor through image alone. Often, church sculptors portrayed mermaids spreading their tails apart thereby exposing their reproductive area, or vesica piscis, Latin for vessel of the fish, in graphic detail. The mermaid's accessories also revealed deeper symbolism, with the mirror and comb representing vanity, not to mention the duality of the soul outside of the body, and the flowing hair signifying femininity. By the medieval age of the 5th to 15th centuries AD, churchgoers throughout Europe worshipped in spaces decorated with overtly sexual mermaid imagery. It could be said that mermaids, hybrid creatures of myth and law, symbolised the early Christian church's willingness to hybridise itself, to embrace a mix of pagan and Christian belief systems, to cultivate the largest possible congregation. The Christian Church wielded considerable power in Western European society by the High Middle Ages of 800 to 1300. It is known that Christianity took firm root in Ireland in the 5th and 6th centuries and the rest of the British Isles was mostly Christianised later by Irish missionaries from Iona. One of the earliest British accounts of mermaids is from Iona, the Scottish island where St Columba founded a Christian community in the 6th century AD. According to the story, a mermaid repeatedly left the sea and approached one of the monks to beg him to grant her a soul. Each time he said that he would only do so if she promised to abandon the sea forever. Finally she returned, crying to the waves. Her tears turned into grey pebbles on the beach, which are known to this day as mermaid's tears. 
missionaries like St. Patrick helped to establish an Irish brand of Christianity which proved popular throughout the rest of Britain over the next few centuries. Folk tales tell of St. Patrick banishing old pagan women from the earth and turning them into mermaids, and of the mermaid Finton, who was converted by St. Patrick and afterwards canonised. So the Christian church deliberately adopted and adapted pagan symbols like that of the water goddess in its holy spaces, and Christian doctrine steadily displaced symbols of the sacred feminine by the medieval period. However, such efforts had unexpected side effects. By utilising mermaid imagery to support religious tenets, the Christian church legitimised them, creating the foundation for belief and acceptance in mermaids for generations to come. Going further back in time, from ancient Greece come three supernatural spirits whose images and attitudes contribute to the development of the mermaid. First we have Scylla, the six-headed monster with triple rows of teeth and a canine mouth who could eat six sailors at a time if their ships sailed too close to her cave. Second we have the Nerids, who had human form. They were often seen riding naked upon dogfish-like sea monsters. Nerids were responsible for shipwrecks and storms. They had irresistible singing voices. They were fickle enchanting and incredibly dangerous. Finally, we have the sirens with their irresistible song. Originally with women's heads and birds' bodies, as they became conflated with the mermaids of northern European law, sirens began to be represented as part flying fish and part human female. It's the power of their song and music rather than their appearance that characterises them across time. An episode of Homer's Odyssey captures the powers of the sirens. The Odyssey follows Odysseus and his crew as they make their way home to Ithaca from the Trojan War. They encounter storms, monsters and tests along the way. When Odysseus and his men encounter the sirens, he's ready for them thanks to the goddess Circe who's warned him and suggested how he and his men can pass them unscathed. The siren's song is their deathly lure while the crewmen have wax stuffed into their ears so that they can row to get the ships past the siren's shore, Odysseus is tightly roped to the ship's mast. Thus immobilised, he alone is privileged to hear the siren song without the risk of death. Homer's sirens sing a song that promises knowledge, a wisdom that bridges worlds. While their appearance differs from that of the mermaids, with whom they are later conflated, the sirens' music is still a portal that draws humans into a different dimension. I'm now going to tell you another mythical tale from Greece. The god-king Alexander the Great had conquered all the kingdoms of earth, and having the whole world, he summoned his magicians and asked them, What can I do to live many years and enjoy the world which I've made entirely mine? Well, king, your power is great, replied the magicians, but what's written in destiny cannot be unwritten. There's only one thing that can make you enjoy your realms and your glory and become immortal and live as long as the mountains, but it's too hard for you. I don't care whether it's too hard for me, just tell me what it is, said Alexander, and then I'll do it. Oh, well, your majesty, if that's the case, it's the water of immortality. 
If you drink the water of immortality, you will not die. But if you are to reach it, you must cross two mountains that constantly clash against each other, and not even a flying bird has time to pass between these two mountains before they get crushed. If you make it past the mountains, there's a never-sleeping dragon who guards the water of immortality. If you kill the dragon, you can take the water, and then you'll live forever. At once, Alexander sent for his horse Bucephalus that had no wings but could fly like a bird. He mounted his steed, he crossed the clashing mountains, he killed the sleepless dragon, and he took the glass jar with the water of immortality. He returned to the palace, and he was a bit tired, so he took a nap. But he failed to keep the water safe. His sister saw the water jar, not knowing what it was. She threw it away. By chance, the water fell onto a wild onion, and that's why wild onions never wilt. After a while, Alexander woke up, and he looked for the water of immortality to drink. He asked his sister, and she said, oh, I didn't know what it was. I just threw it out. The king was beside himself with anger and frustration, and he cursed her to become a fish from the waist down and forever be tormented as long as the world stands in the middle of the sea. Ever since then, ships that travel through the ocean see her wandering in the waves. She doesn't actually hold any bitterness for her brother, but when she does spot a ship, she asks, Is Alexander alive? If the captain replies, He's dead, the maiden in her sorrow starts berating the sea with her arms, and she brings up a storm and the ship sinks. If the captain is in the note, the captain replies, Ah, Alexander is fine, and he reigns, and the maiden is reassured, and she happily sings a sweet song. And this is actually where sailors get all of their lovely songs from. Mermaids are strong and tough. It's said that a mermaid can crush a mortal to death. There's some confusion about whether mermaids are malicious or forgetful about the human ability to breathe underwater, and mermaids have also been known to eat their victims after drowning them. Some folks tell of folk not drowning but being taken to the mermaid's sea fairy type underwater kingdom and safely returning to the shore. There is a risk of pining to death after this type of experience or throwing oneself into the waves in an attempt to get back often seen singing on rocks, curbing their long hair with looking glasses that wink in the sunlight. Mermaids are irresistible to sailors. Sailors' maps have been found with spots marked, Here be mermaids. If a mermaid is captured, it's not unusual for her kin to cause heavy storms and mists and gales and shipwrecks, cutting off all access for the coastal human community. Mermaids allure men to their death, and their appearance is ominous of storms and disasters. In fact, as previously mentioned, mermaids are not only ominous of misfortune, but actually provoke misfortune and will drown people. The mermaid's comb may have originally been fish bones. It was an old sailor's belief that if you had fish bones on board your ship, you could divine the weather and take control of a storm to calm the winds. Another tool of the mermaid is the mirror. The mirror has been used for magic as a looking glass much like a crystal ball. Mirrors often represent the moon and divination and, as previously mentioned, the duality of the soul outside of the body.
In some early Celtic descriptions, mermaids are massive. In the Annals of the Four Masters, a chronicle of medieval Irish history, there's a record of a mermaid 50 metres long with hair 5 metres long and fingers 2 metres long. These measurements were so precise because this mermaid was cast up from the sea around AD 887. Mermaids are not exclusive to salt water, and there are stories of lake mermaids like this one, the Laird of Launty, told by Robert Chambers in his book Popular Rhymes of Scotland. One night, the young Laird of Launty in Forfarshire was returning from hunting, accompanied by a servant and two hounds. As he passed a lock, he heard the cries of a woman. It sounded like she was drowning. He spurred his horse to the lakeside and saw a beautiful woman struggling in the water. She called out, Help! Help! Launty! before the cries were swallowed by the water as she sank beneath the surface. The laird ran into the lake and was about to grasp the long yellow locks when he suddenly was grabbed by his servant, who sensed that something was awry. Bide, Launty! Bide a blink. That woman was no other than a mermaid. Launty took his servant's advice, and as he was mounting his horse to leave, the mermaid raised herself out of the water and shouted, Launty! Launty! Was it not for your man, I'd have got your heart's blood skirl in my pan. Some Scottish folk tales paint a gentler picture of the mermaid, like this example. A girl was at death's door with the consumption. Her lover, desperate, cried out to the sea, and a good mermaid sang to him. Would you let your bonny maid die in your hand, and the mugwort flowering in the land? The lover followed the mermaid's advice and cropped the flower tops and gave the juice to his dearest, who was cured. Mermaids had knowledge of herbs and also had prophetic powers. Some mermaids were courted by human lovers, becoming unwilling wives, bequeathing webbed hands and feet to their children, but also great healing skills, as in this Cornish tale, the tale of Lutie and the Mermaid. Luti was a Cornish fisherman and a wrecker who lived near Lizard Point. He was combing the beach for Jetsam when he found a beautiful mermaid in a pool, stranded by the receding tide. She asked him to carry her to the sea, which he did. As he carried her, she offered him three wishes. He chose wishes that would do good the power to break the spells of witchcraft, the power to compel familiar spirits for the good of others and for these powers to be hereditary. She granted these wishes, and because he had wished unselfishly, she said none of his family would ever come to want, and she gave him a comb so that he could summon her. The mermaid started to take a fancy to him. As they got closer to the sea, she allured him to go with her and tightened her grip on his neck. Her glamour was so strong that he would have gone with her, but his dog howled to him from the shore, and he came to his senses and told her to let him go. She wouldn't until he flashed his knife in her face, and she plunged into the sea, presumably repelled by the iron. She called, Farewell, my sweet, for nine long years, then I'll come to you, my love. Nine years later, he was out at sea with one of his boys when a beautiful woman rose from the water and called to him. 
My hour is come, he said, and he plunged willingly into the water. His magical gifts were passed on down the family line, but every nine years a member of the family was lost at sea. Also in Cornwall, in Zena Church, St Ives, is a bench-end carved with a 15th-century mermaid with flowing hair and comb and mirror. There is a story behind this misery chord. A mermaid was attracted from the sea to listen to the singing of a chorister by the name of Matthew. She lured him to the sea and dragged him down beneath the waves, never to be seen again. His singing is still heard from under the waves from time to time. Some years later, the mermaid appeared to the captain of a ship moored off Pendower Cove, complaining that the anchor was laid across the entrance of her undersea home, preventing her from reaching her husband Matthew and their children. On returning to land, the captain told his tale, and as a result, the carving was made in the church as a warning to youths of the dangers of the merry maids. In Cornwall, mermaids are known as merry maids, and mermen as merry men. Cornish children used to be told that all Cornish men possessed fishtails, which they put on whenever they wished to escape into the sea. On the Isle of Man, the thick mists which often cover the island are said to be the result of a mermaid's curse on the entire island after a local youth rejected her advances. Manx mermaids are known as Benvare. They're said to be a little bit nicer than other mermaids. They'll warn of oncoming storms and reward acts of kindness. There's a tale of a baby Ben Varey stealing a doll from a child and the mermaid's mum commanding her to give the human a necklace of beautiful pearls as payment. There is the tale of a Ben Varey who befriends a fisherman who gives her apples. She calls these apples land eggs. The son of the fisherman plants an apple tree by the creek so the apples can float out to sea even after he's gone. Mermaids were often caught and held to ransom for the sake of the wishes they could grant or the knowledge they could give. They always held exactly to their bargains. In Scotland and in Ireland, the possibility of final salvation of the souls of merfolk was raised. In Scotland, merfolk were always destined to hell. However, in Ireland there is Liban who died in the odour of sanctity. Liban was not born a mermaid. She was one of the daughters of Achi, king of the first inhabitants of Ireland. In the year 90 AD, a sacred spring which had been sacrilegiously neglected overflowed its bounds and formed the great water of Loch Neagh. Achi and his family were all drowned, saved for two sons and his daughter Liban. Liban was swept away by the waters, but she and her pet dog were supernaturally preserved and carried into an underwater cave. After a year in the cave, Liban prayed to God that she may be turned into a salmon and swim around with the shoals of fish that passed her bower. God granted her prayer up to a point. She was given the tail of a salmon, but above the waist she retained the shape of a beautiful woman. Her dog was turned into an otter. They swam around together 
for hundreds of years. In time, Ireland became a Christian nation and St Comgall had become Bishop of Bangor. One day he sent one of his clergy, Bayok, to sail to Rome with a message for Pope Gregory. As they sailed, they heard the most lovely singing from under the water. Bayok thought it was an angel, but then Laban spoke from under the water. It is I who am singing. I am no angel, but Liban, daughter of Achi, and for three hundred years I have been swimming the seas. I beg you and the holy men of Banger to come and meet me. Tell St. Comgal to bring nets to catch me. Bayok told St. Comgal of Liban's prayer, and at the allowed date they sent out a fleet of boats, and Liban was drawn from the water. They half filled the boat she was in with water to keep her comfortable. Crowds came to see her. St. Comgal argued with Bayok over who had claimed to her. All the saints of Banger prayed that night for an answer, and an angel came to them in the night, saying next morning a yoke of two oxen would come to them. They should put Liban in a chariot and harness the oxen to it. The oxen would stop in the land of whoever Liban belonged with. The chariot was drawn to Baok's church. There she was given the choice of either dying immediately and ascending straight to heaven, or to stay on earth as long as she had been in the sea and ascend to heaven after three hundred years. Liban chose instant ascension. St. Comgall baptised her by the name of Mergen or Seaborn, and then she ascended. She is accounted one of the holy virgins, and signs and wonders were done in her name. I'm going to talk about different varieties of merfolk now, starting with mermen. Mermen are typically wilder and uglier than mermaids and less interested in humans. Mermen personify the stormy sea and raise bad weather and wreck ships if a mermaid is injured. The Scandinavian merman or havman is handsome with a green or black beard. He lives on cliffs or hills by the shore as well as the sea. He's basically quite nice. Merrows are the Irish equivalent of mermaids. They're beautiful, with webbed fingers and fish's tails. They often appear before storms. They're gentler than most mermaids, and they often fall in love with mortal fishermen. Sometimes merrows come ashore in the form of little hornless cattle, but in their proper shape they wear red feather caps. If the cap is stolen, the merrow cannot return to sea. Female merrows are pretty. Male marrows are ugly with green faces and bodies, red sharp nose and piggy eyes. But male marrows are friendly enough. This is a story called The Soul Cage. It's about Jack Doherty, who befriended a marrow called Kumara. Kumara lent Jack a red cap so that he could visit his home on the sea floor where they drank and they ate. Kumara showed Jack his garden where they had these lobster pot type things. They were soul cages which contained the souls of drowned fishermen. Whenever there was a big storm, Kumara would set his traps and when the souls came down, they would creep into the traps. Jack pitied the souls and decided that he would free them. He invited Kumara to his house to drink pachin. 
Jack drank water whilst the merman drank pure pachin. When Kumara was laid out unconscious, Jack stole away. He borrowed Kumara's hat and swam down and freed the souls. He hitched a ride back onto shore by holding onto the tail of a cod. Kumara seemed none the wiser and the man and the merman stayed friends for years and years. Selkies The Selkies of Orkney and Shetland are much like the Rhone of the West Highlands. In Orkney, the small common seal called by the Orcadians tangfish was of the animal kingdom. The larger seals, the grey seal, the crested seal and other seals were called the selkie folk because it was believed that their natural form was human, that they live in an underwater world and put on seal skins to travel through the water. Selkies were thought to be angels who sat on the fence side when Lucifer rebelled and so were driven out of heaven but weren't bad enough for hell. Alternatively, they were a human race banished to the sea for their sins but allowed to wear human form when on land. In human form, selkies are more beautiful than ordinary mortals. Male selkies would venture ashore to court mortal women and would never stay. The offspring would have webbed hands and feet, which, if cut, grew into tough, horny pads. Tales are told of women summoning selkie lovers by sitting at a rock at high tide and shedding seven tears into the sea. Selkie women don't seek human lovers but are captured unwillingly by the theft of their skins. Mermaids and selkies are distinct beings and there is solidarity between them as this Shetland tale shows. A Shetland fisherman stunned and skinned a selkie and pretended to his mates that it was a dead seal that he had skinned. He threw the dying selkie overboard, who was found by a mermaid when he drifted into her cave. The mermaid allowed herself to be caught by the nets of the boat so that she could retrieve the skin of the selkie. The remorseful fisherman wanted to release the mermaid with the selkie skin she had grabbed, but the fisherman's mates wanted to sail the mermaid at shore. The mermaid knew that if she breathed the air she would die and that her death would raise a storm, and so she allowed herself to fade away. So the storm came and the boat was sunk and the skin drifted into the mermaid's cave and the selkie got his skin back. For this reason, selkies will do all in their power to help mermaids. Maybe a mermaid or a silky told the Shetlanders this tale. Orcadians and Shetlanders believe if selkies bleed into the sea, a fatal storm will be raised, much like with the death of a mermaid. The reef of the Solon Goose, the rocky islet of Sulskeri, is some 25 miles west of Hoyhead in Orkney. It's to this day the resort of thousands of seals of selkies. The Grey Selkie of Sulskeri is a very old Orcadian ballad. It tells of a maiden who dwelt in Norway who fell in love with and married a seal man. Shortly after their marriage he disappeared and the maiden was left to weep as she rocked her infant son on her knee. One day as she sat by the shore, a good grey selkie came and sat down by her feet. The seal addressed her in human speech and said, 
I am a man upon the land, I am a selkie in the sea, and when I'm far from every strand, my dwelling isn't so scary. On hearing this, the girl realised that she was looking on none other than her husband, transformed once more into a grey seal. The Selkie disappeared as soon as it had come. At the end of seven years, he returned, this time as a man, and put a gold chain around the neck of his son, who thereafter followed him on his journeyings. With the passage of the years, the woman forgot her seal husband and married a gunner good, who went out one May morning and shot an old grey seal and a younger one. Around the neck of the younger animal... He found a gold chain, and when he brought it to his wife, she realised that her son had perished, and she gave vent to her grief. Alas, alas, this woeful fate, this weary fate that's been laid for me. And once or twice she sobbed and sighed, and her tender heart. Did break in three. And now on to Roan. Roan is the Gaelic name for a seal, but it was also believed that these were a kind of fairy creature who wore their skins to travel through the sea, but could cast them off and appear in human form. Here is a tale from John O'Groat's way. There was a seal catcher who lost his clasp knife whilst trying to kill a large dog seal. That night there was a knock at the door and a stranger leading a fine horse asked his name, then told him that he'd been sent to order a large number of seal skins from him. The customer was close by. Would the seal catcher come and do the bargain in person? They both got on the horse, and it pelted off faster than the wind along the wild coast until they reached a grey crag above the sea. Where are you taking me? said the fisherman. Get down and you'll soon see, said the stranger. As soon as they dismounted, the stranger grabbed the fisherman tight and jumped off the crag. Down and down and down they went into the depths of the sea until they came to a cave of seal people. The stranger had become a seal. The fisherman realised that he too had become a seal. The seal people were very sad. The fisherman was terrified as he had killed many seal. The stranger produced the knife. Is this your knife? The fisherman admitted it was. It was obvious that they already knew. It was with this knife that you wounded my father, said the stranger, and only you can heal him. He led the fisherman into an inner cave where the big dog seal lay in great pain. The seal people told him to use the knife to make a circle around the wound, smooth it with his hand and wish with all his heart that it would be healed. And so it was. The seal folk celebrated. The fisherman thought he was going to get punished, but the seal folk just asked him to promise never to kill a seal ever again. And the fisherman was taken back to his house safely and given a gift of treasure worth many times more than the seal skins. 
Now I'm going to talk a little bit about seal maidens. Long regarded as the gentlest of the sea spirits, they are the more recent of the fairy bride tradition. The story pattern goes like this. A fisherman sees some beautiful maidens dancing on the shore. He creeps up and steals one of the skins he finds lying on the rocks by the water. The seal maidens take fright and grab their skins and plunge into the sea, except for the one who is left behind without a skin. The fisherman woos and marries her and they have children, but then she finds the hidden skin and she returns to her true home. The rule, as in all fairy bride stories, is that unions between mortals and immortals are destined for breach and bereavement. Let's spend some time in fresh water now with the Nixie. The Nixie is a Teutonic freshwater dweller. Like the mermaid, she has a fish tail and human body. She is reported to be totally green when in the water. Often she is found in the mill pond. Unlike the mermaid, the Nixie lives close to and mingles with human communities. The Nixie is a shopper and is often found in town marketplaces. You can tell a Nixie because she leaves a trail of water behind her and if you were to lift her skirt, you would see a fish tail. The Nixie loves to dance and will appear at the village dance as a pretty lady. She entices many a man out from the dance to the mill stream. In pagan times, she was given at least one sacrifice a year, so now she takes at least one a year as her due. Rescuing a drowning person enrages the Nixie. A Nixie can live on land for extended periods and has been known to marry a mortal man and raise a family. However, her waterkin may come to reclaim her. Whenever a young wife vanishes, it's likely that she was a Nixie, particularly if she was last seen sinking into the water, which was changing into a blood-red colour. Some speculate that the Nixie chooses human mates to propagate their species. The male of the species is called the knock. The knock lives in lakes, ponds, rivers and waterfalls. He looks like an old man with green eyes, huge ears and a long wet beard. The knock drags people down, especially small children, if they play too close to the water. He's most deadly after sunset. To see a knock is an omen that someone will drown. You may hear the shriek of the knock during shipwrecks. The knock is a shapeshifter. The knock may take the shape of a gleaming silver coin or ring to lure the unwary. If you need to drink water inhabited by the knock, spit into it. If you want to swim, throw a steel knife or scissors into the water and say, Knock, knock, needle thief, thou art on the land, but I am in the water. And when you leave the water, say, Knock, knock, needle thief, I am on the land, but thou art in the water. The best prevention against the knock is to say his name three times. In Estonia, the knock is known as the neck. I will say a little more about Estonian waterfolk presently. But first, this story from a late 19th century collection of Bavarian folk tales. There was once a village near a large body of water and many beautiful girls lived there. The more often they swam in the lake, the more lovely they became. Everybody adored them. Girls living in other places heard about them and they came from many different regions to swim in the lake. But since many of them were ugly and couldn't stay underwater as long as the women in the village, they didn't become prettier. In fact, many of them drowned. 
girls stopped travelling there, but suitors from all four points of the compass came courting. All the girls of the village were married on one day. The morning after the wedding, there was an enormous uproar. It turned out that there was something not quite right with the girls. They all had fish scales. A judge appeared on the scene with his officials, took a look at the brides and ordered all of them to be burnt at the stake as witches immediately. As the flames started to rise up, tall waves came from the lake and washed into the village, and a huge head emerged from the waters. It spewed water like a whale and put out the fire. The brides all walked across the arc of water as if it was a bridge, and they went back to the water and into the gate-like jaws of the merman. Since that time, girls no longer swim in that lake. Let's talk a little bit about Estonian water spirits. Water spirits thrived in Estonia until the modernisation of its traditional society at the end of the 19th century. As in other countries, water spirits in Estonia were sometimes considered to be the offspring of angels who had been hurled down from the heavens because they had joined Lucifer's forces in his rebellion against the Christian god. According to another folk etiology, these water spirits were born from the warriors of the pharaoh's army who perished in the Red Sea. A third explanation is that people who have drowned often return as water spirits who lure the living into the water and cause new tragedies. The Estonian shape-shifting knack is similar to the Germanic knock. The knack takes different guises, but they prefer human forms like those of a young woman or an old man or child. Sometimes they'll take an animal form like an ox, horse or dog. Typically in stories, witnessing a knack is a bad omen that predicts that someone will soon drown. Sometimes the knack is actively luring victims to their deaths, as in stories where a water horse invites children to take a ride and then carries them under the water, or when a beautiful maiden seduces a young man. Here is a typical Estonian folk narrative told as a true story, which was collected in the early 20th century. My great-grandmother was on her way to town. Near the bridge of Sola, she saw a woman washing her breasts in the river. The woman had yellow hair and broad hips. She was standing with her back towards my great-grandmother, who shouted, Good morning, mistress of water. The strange woman responded through her nose, In the name of God, let your grandchildren have a happy life until the fourth and fifth generation. They will not die a watery death. This happened in the summertime, at dawn. In the evening, great-grandmother returned from town and heard that in the same place where the water spirit had been, a girl had drowned while washing sheep. The unlucky girl had also had long yellow hair. After two weeks in the same place, a voice was heard saying, the hour is approaching, but not the man. This was repeated several times. Then a man came from the direction of Vader to bath his horse. On the way, people warned him, don't go over there. But the man took no notice of this. He drew the horse into the river in the same place where the voice had been heard. Suddenly the horse fell over and the man fell into the river and drowned in the blink of an eye. And on to the Rusalka. 
The Rusalka is a Polish, Ukrainian and Russian lake and river species best seen on clear nights when the moonlight reflects off her long pistachio green hair. She has delicate pale skin and comely features. She is as tempting as any mermaid. She can shapeshift into toad, frog or fish. She can come onto land in human form and she can stay on land for long periods because she has a magic comb which conjures up water wherever she goes. The original Rusalka is a Russian underwater princess living in a palace at the utmost depths of the river or lake. She's always on the alert for a mortal playmate to share her home. She roams the land, luring children with baskets of goodies and luring young men with her charms. She drowns her companions or tickles them to death. The sign of the cross can dispel their power, as can drawing a magic circle around them. Rusalka are thought to be the souls of unbaptized babies and of drowned virgins. In the spring they leave the water and head for the field and forest to dance in circles with garlands in their hair. They were especially powerful during the mid-June Ruslaya festival. This spring festival had an old rite where an effigy of a Rusalka was buried or torn apart. Offerings of eggs and flowers are made to appease them. Songs were sung to avert their powers. And now the Vodyanoi. The Vodyanoi is a male Russian freshwater species most often found in the mill pond, most often described as an old man with a greenish beard all covered in muck and scales. He's never seen all the way out of the water, so it's hard to tell whether he has a tail or not. He is responsible for drownings. If you try and recover a drowned body, he doesn't like it. He's said to be a fallen angel cast into the water by Archangel Michael. He lives in a glittering underwater palace with the finest chandeliers and furnishings. He thinks of himself as the owner and lord of the pond. He hates the buildings of mills because it tampers with his habitat. He lives to drown people, but he does often actually have a special arrangement with the miller who might dine with the Vodyanoi occasionally in his palace. Folk leave sacrifices to the Vodyanoi, chickens and roosters particularly, to appease him. If they have to swim, they cross themselves. Fishermen make offerings of bread, salt, vodka and tobacco so that he won't mess with their nets. And now on to mermaid encounters. Pliny, the elder, wrote natural history in the first century AD and recorded the instance of a mermaid found dying on the shore near his home. He also gave an account of a giant fossil skeleton found near Joppa, present-day Tel Aviv, as that of a giant triton, a merman. He quoted two illustrious knights who witnessed a giant merman climbing on and capsizing boats near Cadiz. An early documented encounter with merfolk is in the Icelandic Doomsday Book and concerns a mermanil, a merman caught off the island of Grimsey in 1303. A mermaid was captured alive in the Baltic Sea in 1531 and sent as a present to Sigismund, king of Poland. She survived for three days. This story is also reported as the Sea Bishop. In 1670, the provost of the Faroe Island churches saw a mermaid in fierce battle with some sea calves. That's an old name for seals. Later, some dead sea calves and a dead mermaid were found on the beach. 
in the history of the pharaohs, also written in 1670, it's written, There was seen by many of the inhabitants of Pharaoh a mermaid close to the shore. She stood there for two hours and was up to the navel in water. She had long hair which hung down to the surface of the water all around her. She held a fish with the head downwards in her right hand. Eric Pontepidon, Archbishop of Bergen, wrote Natural History of Bergen in 1755, and in it gave an account of merfolk. He related how a manfish transported tribesfolk from Asia to North America in ancient times. Merchildren are mentioned by Pontepidon. He called them childfish. They varied in size from a baby of six months to an infant of three years, upper part of a child, lower part of a fish. Fishermen would usually throw them back into the sea, but occasionally a fisherman would bring them home and feed them milk, but they'd never keep them for longer than a day or two. They'd row back to where they found them and replace them. Mermaid encounters around the British Isles. There are several documented accounts of a merman who was fished out of the Suffolk coast near Orford Castle in 1197. This is what Ralph of Coggeshall, a 13th century Essex abbot, wrote about it. Near to Orfolk in Suffolk, certain fishers of the sea took in their nets a fish having the shape of a man in all points, which fish was kept at Bartlemew de Glanville Custers of the castle at Orford in the same castle by the same space of six months, and what a wonder it was. He spake not a word. All manner of meats he did gladly eat, but more greedily raw fish, after he had crushed out all of the moistures. Oftentimes he was brought to the church, where he showed no tokens of adoration. At length, when he was not well looked to, he stole away to the sea, and never after appeared. Gervais of Tilbury, a contemporary of Ralph, maintained that there were loads of mermaids and mermen to be found at the seas around Great Britain. This is a 16th century report from a chronicler only known as G.P. The wonder of wonders, being a strange and wonderful relation of a mermaid that was seen and spoke with on the Black Rock near Liverpool by John Robinson Mariner, who was tossed on the ocean for six days and six nights, together with the conversation he had with her, and how he was preserved with the manner of his death five days after his return home. This is an anonymous report from the 17th century, a most strange and true report of a monstrous fish that appeared in the form of a woman from her waist upwards, seen in the sea by diverse men of good reputation on the 17th of February last, 1603, in the county of Carmarthen. There was an account of a mermaid seen off Sandside Bay in Caithness, given in a letter to the Times, published in September 1809. In it, William Monroe, a schoolmaster of Thurso, described how he had been walking along the beach in Sutherland Caithness on a fine day when he saw what he thought to be an unclothed human female sitting upon a rock, extending into the sea and apparently in the act of combing its hair, which flowed around its shoulders and was of a light brown colour. The forehead was round, the face plump, the cheeks ruddy, the eyes blue, the mouth and lips of a natural form resembling those of a man, the teeth I could not discover as the mouth was shut. 
the breasts and abdomen, the arms and fingers of the size of a full-grown body of the human species. The fingers from the action in which the hands were employed did not appear to be webbed, but as to this I'm not positive. It appeared on the rocks three or four minutes after I observed it, and was exercised during that period in combing its hair, which was long and thick, and of which it appeared inordinately proud, and then dropped into the sea, from whence it did not reappear. This letter caused quite a stir at the time. This is an 1830 account, collected by Alexander Carmichael, of an encounter in the Highlands. Some locals were cutting seaweed when one of the women, on going to the end of the reef, was amazed to discover a small creature in the form of a woman in miniature only a few feet from her in the water. Her cry of astonishment brought the rest of the party hurrying over. The mermaid played happily in the water until a cruel boy threw a stone at her which hit her in the back. Days later, her body was washed ashore some two miles from the sighting. It was carefully examined and reported thus. The upper part of the creature was about the size of a well-fed child of about three or four years of age and was long, dark and glossy, whilst the skin was white, soft and tender. The lower part of the body was like a salmon, but without scales. Crowds came to gaze at the pathetic remains. The factor and the sheriff, after viewing the body, ordered a shroud and a coffin for the little mermaid. The coffin was buried a short distance from where the mermaid had been washed up. In 1839, Dr. Robert Hamilton wrote this account in his History of Whales and Seals. A boat off the Isle of Yell in the Shetland group captured a mermaid entangled in its lines. A crew of six kept her in the boat for three hours. The skin was grey and smooth. It was three feet long, resembling a human with breasts, face and neck like those of a monkey. Small arms which it kept crossed over the breast with separated fingers. Stiff bristles on the head like a crest which it raised and lowered at pleasure half like a fish. It offered no resistance nor did it attempt to bite. It uttered a low plaintive sound. It had no gills or fins on the back or belt. It had a tail like a dogfish. When returned to the water she dived in instantly. The skipper and the six crew were absolutely convinced that this creature was a mermaid and in no way to be confused with other sea mammals. There was a story told by Miss Margaret Eyre in the early 20th century. The village of Brockwin is on the Gloucestershire side of the River Wye, where the river is still tidal. In past days, salmons were caught in nets stretched out between two boats, which converged, making a bag. A pair of boats was out, steered by two fishermen. One noticed as the net was closing that an enormous fish had been caught. Being very excited, he went to quickly close the bag and he pinched the tail of the strange fish between the two boats. The fish upended, as it were, and proved to be a very angry mermaid. She broke free and told the culprit that very few of their descendants would die in their beds. A Mermaid's Curse in 1961, the Isle of Man held an official mermaid hunt after reports that several islanders insist that they have seen mermaids sunning themselves on the rocky shores and they say that the creatures are gorgeous. A £20,000 reward was offered by a member of the Houses of Parliament to the first person who can land such an elusive catch. Whilst a local policeman, the mayoress of Peel and a secretary swore to have seen multiple mermaids off their coast.
In June 1825, Robert S. Hawker, an eccentric who later became the vicar of Morwenstow, fooled the residents of Bude when, by the light of the full moon, he impersonated a mermaid. Naked to the waist, with legs imprisoned in oilskins, he posed himself on a rock some ways from the shore, where, with a wig of seaweed and holding a mirror, he sang. After a few nights, the discomfort got the better of him, and he sang God Save the King before swimming away. Mermaids from Japan The Japanese have a long history with water deities and hybrid creatures. The origin of the ningyo, the human fish, is unclear. However, it is known that they belong to an ancient group of Japanese creatures called yokai, which inspire never-ending mysteries to investigate. The moment a mystery is solved... Yokai assume different shapes, changing right alongside the human and inspiring them to keep asking questions. Ningyo are not necessarily gendered. Like Europeans, early Japanese people claimed to physically interact with Ningyo. The earliest documented instance comes from about 619 AD, near present-day Osaka, when a fisherman ensnared a creature shaped like a child. It was neither fish nor person, and its name was unknown. There are mermaid wife tales in Japanese folklore where the mermaid wife, like her European counterpart Melusine, must leave the human world once her husband breaks his promise and sees her hybrid shape while she's taking her weekly salt water bath. There is a European belief that eating mermaid flesh will prolong your life by many hundreds of years. Before Europeans began to visit Japan regularly and informal cultural exchange began to occur, expert Japanese craftsmen used various materials to convincingly combine the upper half of a monkey with the bottom half of a fish. Some Buddhist and Shinto shrines in Japan still hold these little fakes. Some of them are very, very old. With the arrival of the Europeans, Japanese craftsmen started creating these creatures to sell to credulous adventurers as they arrived in the Far East, expecting to find merpeople. In 1822, an American sea captain by the name of Eads became so obsessed with a Japanese dried mermaid that he decided to sell his ship and its contents to buy it, even though he didn't own the ship or the contents. When Captain Eads had to stop in Cape Town, South Africa, spectators could not believe their eyes. One missionary was so taken aback that he exclaimed in a letter published in the London Philanthropic Gazette, I have today seen a mermaid now exhibiting in this town. I have always treated the existence of these creatures as fabulous, but my scepticism is now removed. By the time that Eads's mermaid arrived in London in the autumn of 1822, it was already a celebrity in its own right, with an exhibition area waiting for it and stories multiplying in England's newspapers. However, within months, the mermaid was discredited as a fake and Eads, after having to repay his creditors, had to return to being a ship's captain. Whilst the disappointed captain lived out his days at sea, his mermaid's world tour had not finished. In 1842, the American Prince of Humbug, P.T. Barnum, bought Eads Mermaid and renamed it the Fiji Mermaid. The Philadelphia Public Ledger reported it thus. The greatest discovery yet made is still to be announced and it is left to us to make the fact 
public. We have seen a mermaid. Start not and curl your lips in scorn, though concerning a fish, it is not a fish a story. We have seen the tangible evidence exhibited to our senses of the existence of that monster, hitherto deemed fabulous by all the learned, though religiously believed by every salt-water naturalist that ever crossed the Gulf Stream. The monster is one of the greatest curiosities of the day. It was caught near the Fiji Islands and taken to Penambuco, where it was purchased by an English gentleman named Griffin, who is making a collection of rare and curious things for the British Museum. This animal, fish, flesh or whatever it may be is about three feet long and the lower part of the body is a perfectly formed fish but from the breast upwards this character is lost and it approaches human form or rather that of a monkey. The Fiji mermaid was a sensation in the press and the public flocked to see it. Over the next three years, Barnum employed a cunning combination of trickery, science, entertainment and capitalistic advertising to profit more greatly from the public's lingering credulity than anyone before him, even as the mermaid was conclusively proven to be fake. In doing so, Barnum simultaneously peaked and shattered the American and European belief in the reality of mermaids. But the ocean is big. Maybe there are mermaids.